I thought that doing research would be able to kind of generate this clean and pristine Chinese medicine. My perspective has changed since then. My view of research and evidence has been turned on its head. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. The other day I was listening to a podcast about social media, and I heard the guest say, tweets, hashtags, and Instagram memes, they are soliloquies, which is fine, but the problem is that we confuse them with dialogue. Occasionally, I hear something like this, and I just hit pause. Pause for a moment to let it sink in. Confusing soliloquy with dialogue? Wow. Hearing that was like suddenly seeing a patient's key symptom that ties the diagnosis together. That went through me like a roomy poem. All of a sudden, I was seeing the world differently. Hashtags and placards do nothing for conversation. They're provocative and guaranteed to fire off an emotional response, but they do nothing to create the kind of dialogue that can catalyze some sort of coming together of polarities. They're not meant for conversation. They're not designed to be imitations. They're designed to inflame, incite, and broadcast a message, which is fine so long as you don't confuse these with an attempt at discussion. I'm seeing now how social media can be so frustratingly shallow. It's because I thought it was about conversation. I confused bird call with teamwork, conflated slogan with sensibility, and I failed to see that hashtags, they're basically logos. Respectful discourse has all but disappeared, and I suspect it is in part due to thinking that we're using social media for conversation, but it's not designed for conversation. It's designed for amplifying opinion and belief. Can we somehow walk ourselves back to the campfire, the salon, the Chautauqua, or the graduate seminar where seeking to understand and allowing ourselves the space to consider other points of view, to listen and engage with equal measures of respect and challenge, to allow for the possibility of coming away changed, or at least more respectful of another person's point of view. Technological genies never go back in the bottle. It doesn't work that way. How do we create communities where our differences can also be our strengths? In a moment, we're going to get into a conversation on the role of TCM, where it came from, how it serves us now, and where it might take us in the future. And the interesting thing is, this is not a discussion of history. It's about a research project. When she was in school, Brenda Lee decided to use the scientific method to dig into pulling out the essence of Chinese medicine. And what she discovered was surprising. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine. And the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. 
do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lyle, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. All right, friends, let's get into this conversation on the transformation of a scientist into an alchemist. Brenda Lee, welcome to Geological. Thank you, Michael. I'm really excited to be here. I'm super happy to have you because we spoke like a year, year and a half ago-ish, something like that. And I remember at that time saying, I'd like to have you on the podcast. And you said no, because you didn't quite feel ready. (laughs) But the reason I wanted to have you is because you, when you were a student, you were working on this research project. and And I had a chance to participate. I was invited. And uh, and I did participate, and I was I was quite taken with this project. It was very interesting 
topic of inquiry, you really brought some research chops to this thing. I wanted to share it with people, but you were like, yeah, I'm not quite ready, but now you are. To be honest, Michael, I, I don't feel quite ready yet, but <laughs> I'm going to give it my best shot. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to do it. I, I want to share something with you because you're kind of a new practitioner. All the best jobs I ever had, all the things I've ever done in my life that turned out to be great things, I was not capable of doing them when I began. Mm. But I did it anyway, and there were people usually – like especially if I was looking for a job, there were people that would hire me anyway. It's like I'm not – I don't have the chops for this, but I have the – maybe I have the capacity. So if you got the capacity, I think you'll do fine. Well, that's reassuring to hear because I feel that way in the clinic right now where I don't feel quite ready yet and I'm kind of just diving into the deep end. So I'm just kind of trusting the process. I've been at this for over 20 years. Sometimes I'm moving toward a patient to get started with needles, and they say, what are you going to do today? And the answer is, we're going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, Michael, so you're telling me this isn't just a phase? <laughs> this is the work. Mm -hmm. This is the work. This is the work, moment to moment, breath by breath, glimpse by glimpse. I think this is the work. Now, you know, there are protocols and, and things of that nature. In fact, we're going to get into this because your research project was about TCM, often a very protocolized way of working. So we're going to, we're going to get into talking about that. And yeah, is there room for protocols? Maybe for certain things. I think it depends on what you're seeing and, you know, the kind of work that you do and the perspective that you have. So keep the freshness. Beginner's mind, right? Beginner's mind is super uncomfortable. That's the thing Suzuki Roshi didn't remind us about. You know, he's always like beginner's mind, and we're all like, ooh, cool, beginner's mind. And, you know, but if you think about beginner's mind, it's like, oh my God, now what? Beginner's mind is not comfortable, but it's open. So you did a research project while you were in school. That's right. Whatever inspired you? Well, to be honest, Michael, when I first started acupuncture school, I was coming from, like I had just finished my nutrition degree. So I was kind of coming from this biomedical background. And actually, at the time, I placed a lot of value on research because I really wanted to kind of bring this gold standard of evidence-based practice to Chinese medicine, which in hindsight, I... I realized was a little bit kind of naive. At the time, I figured that doing research was going to be the best way to contribute to our profession. I was really fortunate to attend a school that was nestled within this larger university, you know, a public university that had a research department, and they gave out these research grants to undergraduate students. So I decided that I wanted to do a research project, and I reached out to one of my instructors, Darren Tellier, and then we sat down and started brainstorming some ideas. So that's kind of how we got started. I'm curious to hear about being naive. What makes <laughs> you at this moment in time think that you were naive about looking for evidence-based, you know, evidence for what our medicine is? I think that at the time I was 
very much looking at Chinese medicine through the lens of biomedicine. So I thought um, at the time, before I had entered acupuncture school, that I had diagnosed the problem with Chinese medicine, which was simply that there wasn't enough research out there. If we could conduct research, we would be able to demonstrate the legitimacy of Chinese medicine and, you know, elucidate its mechanism of actions and develop protocols for Chinese medicine that were efficacous and, you know, could result in repeatable, measurable kind of results. And so I thought that doing research would be able to kind of generate this clean and pristine Chinese medicine, <laughs> which obviously <laughs> my, pers <laughs> my perspective has changed since then. But um, yeah, definitely my, my view of research and evidence has been turned on its head. That's great. Well, I mean, I think it's just good that we get turned on our head from time to time. And I want to hear more about this in a moment about your, how your perspective has changed. But before we do that, research, I mean, research can be really helpful. I mean, in a way, every time we do a treatment, we're doing a little N of one study on people. Oh, yeah. How has your thoughts about research shifted with the experiences that you've had in school and now in practice and... And, you know, as you begin this journey as a practitioner into discovering just what this medicine is. Mm -hmm. I think that one thing I learned about research after spending some time in the Chinese medicine profession is that I think research serves a different purpose in Chinese medicine compared to conventional health professions. Because in conventional health professions, like nutrition, where I came from, research generates the evidence, which then guides clinical practice. But I think in Chinese medicine, research is more used for maybe measuring the effects of the medicine or maybe trying to understand how it works. But the evidence that we get from research is generally not used to guide clinical practice. And actually, what we use to guide clinical practice is our source texts, which is basically the classics that have been, you know, compiled over thousands of years. So I think that evidence looks quite different between these two different worldviews. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting to me that when you look at the Chinese, the word for evidence, right? Zheng, the character for evidence and the character for diagnosis is the same. It's the same character, which I always thought was kind of an interesting thing. That's fascinating. It's funny. I don't really use research that much in my practice. Like you say, it doesn't help guide me in the work that I do. At the same time, I think there's something... It's like if we're really being effective in our clinical work through whatever modality, whatever mindset, whatever way we have of doing it, then it should leave fingerprints on the research, right? You should be able to do research that shows our work to be effective. I mean, doesn't that make sense that if people are actually getting better, there'd be a way to measure it? There definitely 
are ways to measure it, but I don't know if our conventional research methods are completely appropriate for measuring the effects of Chinese medicine. And I've really enjoyed the podcasts that you've done with Lisa Taylor Swanson, where, um, you know, you're, you guys are exploring the research that she's doing, you know, with kind of these dynamic kind of systems model, which I think might be more suitable for trying to understand how Chinese medicine works and maybe measuring its effects. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to like the standard, more linear model. Yeah, I remember for a long time, it seemed as a profession, it's just my perception, that we were looking for research to prove that our stuff was real. And, you know, and we, and then we pull that research out and we use it in our marketing material and go, look, acupuncture works. Yes. It'd be like more for marketing and and not so much for guiding. And, and then of course there's that whole Western mindset and it's, it's so cool. I mean, you started with that and you've journeyed to another place, but so often with that Western mindset, let's look at what <laughs> the mechanism is. If we can understand the mechanism, if we know what that molecule does, if we know what that point does, then... We're going to know the whole thing, or we're going to be able to just apply it, uh, really without a whole lot of thought. Very much like as a technician would apply it. Yeah, exactly. And that was, you know, the type of training that I was immersed in for six years before I did acupuncture. So I was very much going at it from this reductionist viewpoint. But I think after doing this project and talking to, you know, people like you and others who have been in this profession for so many years, that really shifted my perspective. And now I think that, you know, trying to look at Chinese medicine through the lens of biomedicine in a way is kind of like trying to examine a painting through a microscope. Ooh, yes. Yes, that's that really lands, doesn't it? It's like trying to look at a painting through a microscope. You can zoom in on, you know, the tiny particles of paint or the fibers of the paper, but you might be missing out on the lines and the shapes and the colors and textures and the focal point and beauty of the whole painting. And I think that's the problem if we, for example, isolate a molecule from a certain herbal formula and then we talk about its mechanism of action, we might be neglecting to appreciate this synergistic dance that's being performed by all the herbs in the formula. And we're blind to all those other entanglements that it might have. Mm-hmm. All the Absolutely. other things. That's why you get side effects so often with Western medications. Yeah. It doesn't take that larger view. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So let's take a look at this painting that we call well TCM, because this is what your your project was on. Tell us about it. Sure. So basically, my project asks the question: What is TCM? And that's an easy question, right? (laughs) You know, at first I thought it was so easy. At first, when Darren suggested this project, I was like, okay, that sounds boring. Like, I'm a second year TCM student. I know what TCM is. (laughs) 
Um, but then I began looking into its history, um, some of its defining features, and how that all relates to education and regulation. And then I realized that it was quite a complex issue. Tell us more about the complexities that you came across. Okay. As I'm sure you're aware, Michael, TCM is this term that tends to have its definition disputed. It doesn't really have a clear definition. And at least in Canada, we kind of have, you know, I came across kind of two different definitions primarily. One is used by stakeholders such as professional or governmental organizations where they kind of opt for a more broad definition and they define it as a catch-all term that represents all the medical theories and practices developed over thousands of years in China. Whereas stakeholders such as historians or sinologists might be more likely to qualify the term TCM in relation to historical and political developments that happened in 20th century China. So we have this kind of discrepancy in defining TCM. And on the surface, it looks like, you know, we're just debating a label. But it's important to examine this discrepancy because if a medicine's foundation is unclear and obscured, then how can it have a clear vision of how practitioners are trained and what standards they're held to and how our profession fits within the broader healthcare system? Because TCM is kind of this current benchmark framework, in at least in Canada, for training. I think it's the same thing here in the United States. We have a standardized exam. Schools, because they want their students to pass and get licenses, they teach to the standardized exam. This is, this is the problem with standardization. I mean, on one hand, it's helpful because you get a minimal level of competency that you can kind of rely on. But then... You're also teaching to the exam, and so all the other pieces that might be in there don't get much mention. No, and I think that was something I noticed in my instructors was that they often, at least I perceived that they often tried to enrich our education, you know, by encouraging us to not think, you know, put people in these static boxes and try to think more about, you know, pathomechanisms or not to, you know, establish a point prescription based on simply point indications and things like that. But I think there was also this dilemma they had where they also didn't want to confuse us too much um, before we take the exam, because I think going into the exam, you really need to have those TCM kind of knee-jerk responses locked and loaded we had a very similar thing at the school that I attended where they would, they'd say, these are the things that are going to be on the exam. These are the things you need to know so you can pass your licensure. But the medicine is much bigger than that. Um, and sometimes teachers would say, well, this stuff we're going to talk about today, not going to help you in that exam. Just know that. And, and we also were given the same uh, admonishment. There are these boxes that you put people into it's kind of helpful to, to be able to sort in your brain, and you need to know it for the test. But then I remember one teacher in particular, he said, don't you ever put your patients in a box. <laughs> I'm teaching you how to put your patients in a box. 
don't you ever put your patients in a box. So it, it kind of speaks to what you're talking about, that there is what's needed for government and licensure and so that we can have a profession that we call a profession, that there's a certain standard. And yet there's so much more than the standard. Yeah. You know, it's really great that um, your school was kind of open about, you know, explaining that there is more to the medicine than this, what you're going to study for the standardized exam. Um, but I don't know that, um, you know, every school or at least regulatory bodies are necessarily that transparent about that. Um, and I think one of the issues is that there may be this kind of notion that there is only TCM and TCM is the Chinese medicine and that, you know, there may not be other frameworks or traditions that are mentioned. And I think that's one potential issue in the discussion surrounding TCM. Mm -hmm. Well, I think as a practitioner, we know that's not true. I mean, we find that out very, very quickly. All you have to do is do a little bit of work in clinic. And you'll see the truth of that. However, as a regulatory body, you need certain standards and, you know, boxes that people can check, levels that people can arrive at, and and, and that's the way that that's, those systems work. Exactly. I mean, how do you take this enormous and diverse body of knowledge that is Chinese medicine and try to regulate it? You know, it's... That's a huge undertaking. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Regulation is a piece. How do you test for a minimal competency? I think is another huge question. Yeah. So you decided to research this seemingly simple question. <laughs> Tell us what you found. Basically, I interviewed um, nine people, including, you know, practitioners, um, translators, and historians, just about their perceptions and analysis of TCM. And basically, um, what I've learned from our interviews is that um, starting with the historical piece, you know, the mid-19th to mid-20th century that was a really tumultuous time for China. Oh my you know, God, it was awful. Yeah. We think we're having trouble now? This is a cakewalk. I know. All we have to do is stay home, right? Right. All we have to do is stay home. <laughs> it's not that hard. 
<laughs> they didn't they didn't have a home. No, oh gosh, no. There was everything from political corruption to exploitation by western powers, huge famines, you know, mm-hmm. lots and of civil uprisings. They had that big oh epidemic gosh. like in the early yeah. 1900s there in uh, the northeast part of China. Ugh. Makes COVID look like uh I was going to say a head cold, but that's probably not the right thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Makes COVID uh, look like indigestion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it was, a, it was a tough time back then. It was a tough time. And so considering that traumatic kind of chapter of history, you know, it's no surprise that Chinese medicine took a pretty big hit during that time as well. And there were multiple attempts to abolish Chinese medicine. But then, you know, in kind of the mid to late 1900s, the country was just so poor and they were in such desperate need of health care. And Chinese medicine is a lot cheaper than Western medicine. So they kind of decided to revisit that and they had to find a way to train lots of doctors as quickly as possible. And so they took this huge knowledge base of Chinese medicine and simplified it and standardized it so that they could teach it on a national level. And that's basically generated what was officially called traditional Chinese medicine or TCM. And essentially, my paper looks at some of the features of TCM, as well as its advantages and shortcomings, um, and then explore kind of the implications that it has for education and regulation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, it, it's just my opinion. I'm going to get yours in a moment. It is extraordinary what they did. Because generally speaking, the way you would learn medicine prior to that is you would apprentice yourself. It would take years, maybe yeah. a decade. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, you might spend a couple of years just watching your teacher do something before they'd even start to explain it. It took a long time to cook a Chinese – well, we already know it takes a long time to cook a Chinese medicine doctor. Oh, Yeah. At first, like the first while, you're just sweeping the guy's floor. Yeah. At least we're not sweeping floors in our schools. We're learning something, <laughs> right? Step up. True. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so to, to try to synthesize something or – this, this may sound awful, but I, I still think of it this way. It was almost like they were doing the, all right, Chinese medicine for dummies book, right? Chinese <laughs> medicine for the complete idiot. I had, a, I had a manual. I actually did. This was like way back when I owned a Volkswagen. This was before the Dummies Guides. And there really was a book called The Complete Idiot's Guide to Fixing Your Volkswagen. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was this beautiful, it was like hand-drawn, this guy who like really knew Volkswagens, like how to tear them apart and put them together. It was all hand-drawn and it was hilarious and it was funny and it taught you the mechanics. But beyond mechanics, it it... It was almost like Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance kind of thing. Because you talk about like, so here's what's going on in your engine. Sit down. Here, light up a cigarette and just think. That's back when people smoked cigarettes. Roll up a cigarette and smoke it and let's think about this for a moment, right? And then you explain a process to you and then you could like figure out how to tune your carburetor. And it was called The Complete Idiot's Guide to like Repairing Your Volkswagen. I loved that book. And, and when I think of TCM, it's, it's kind of like a complete idiot's guide to Chinese medicine. It, it takes some 
fundamental principles. I mean, it seems to me that TCM has the fundamental principles. That still gets transmitted. Now, what you do with those principles and how you apply them and, and the nuances and other, you know, maybe even wacky traditions that are connected to it, we still use the same principles, it seems. Have you found that to be the case? What did you find? I found that TCM definitely has a lot of those foundational principles. Like you always say, it provides this basic foundation, this basic language and vocabulary for you to begin to understand these different aspects of Chinese medicine and maybe some of the relationships between different concepts. One of my findings um, was that although TCM does provide kind of this basic foundation, it might not provide enough context for the theory and principle behind its logic, because it does tend to emphasize, you know, protocols that don't necessarily explain the dynamic behind their use. You know, for example, we might be taught that LI-11, um, you can use it to clear heat, but then we might not be taught why LI-11 can clear heat. So I guess standardization can make education more efficient, um, more accessible for the masses, but then it can also take away some of the context that enables practitioners to adaptively apply concepts in the clinic. I think you're right about that. I mean, I think partly that's why it takes so much time to learn it, because we come up against these things and we, and then we have to like solve for it. Why did this thing not work? I mean, it's great when it works, but that's usually not a learning process. We're not learning. When things work, we're not learning. We're practicing, but we're not learning. It's when things don't work. Now we're learning. Now we got to figure out, it's supposed to work like this. The book said it worked like this. My teacher said it worked like this. How come I can't get it to work? So that context piece, super important. How would you see that if you were designing an educational program? How would you bring that in? Hmm. Um, so some ideas potentially would be to provide more of that underlying philosophy and historical context or the cultural context surrounding those concepts and theories because I think if students can understand the origins and the underlying logic behind what they're learning, then they can have a deeper understanding of that. And some of my participants suggested that, you know, to deepen understanding of Chinese medicine, then uh, it's important to study the classic texts because that is kind of the source texts of our profession. And that is basically the context of what we do. And for instance, you know, if there was a herbal formula, it would probably help to know, you know, who developed that herbal formula and for what reason, because if you have that context, then you understand, you know, how it was used, what it was originally developed for. Yes. That information is in the Materia Medica. I remember reading the Penske Materia Medica and it would, it would always mention who did that formula, who created it. I can't remember if it mentioned like the dynasty. I don't think it did. Maybe it did. I can't remember right now. But 
Yeah, if you know that it's like, oh, Li Dongyuan developed this, and he lived in, I think, the Yuan Dynasty. I can't remember what dynasty he lived in. But that's a very different time than, say, the, the Song Dynasty or the Han Dynasty, right, or the Ming Dynasty. So each, you know, each of these formulas were created by somebody who was living in a set of circumstances that could be wildly different from other doctors who created formulas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And one thing I remember seeing in some of my class notes, for instance, when I took some of the um, Chinese medicine internal medicine courses, is that, you know, we would often be given this table, for example, you know, if it was, I don't know, say epigastric pain, and then you would have one column that was like um, spleen chi deficiency, and then you would have another column that would be like, I don't know, damp heat in the lower jiao. And then there would be another one that was like um, Shaoyang syndrome or something. I don't know. I'm just making this up as I go. But those are from three completely separate frameworks from, you know, very different time periods. And they're kind of just placed side by side on the same sheet of paper. And I think that that might take away some of the context that is important for understanding, um, you know, where those ideas came from. I could not agree with you more. It, for me, learning to fill that context in over the years is what has helped me to better understand how some, how does it, how has it helped me? I don't know how it's helped me. I just know that it has. I don't think I can put a specific, oh, because I know this came from Han Dynasty and not Song Dynasty, it means this. I, I, I can't tell you why that's the case. But somehow knowing, and, and this is a term that Volker Scheid uses, uh, you know, we, we go through school and we learn what we learn and we, oh, and we see these classics and we go, oh, we do Chinese medicine. And Volker Scheid says, there is no Chinese medicine. There's Chinese medicines. There's all kinds of different medicines. Depends on your time, depends on your place, the particular way you practice. It's not one thing. Yeah. I have a question for you. So after you graduated, how did you go about filling in the context that might have been missing from your education? Mm. I saw patients because... The experience in clinic will tell you if you're right or if you're wrong. Reality, reality will tell you. I can have a great idea and it can be proven wrong by reality. How do you know? The patient didn't get better. Maybe the patient got worse. So I think clinic is what proves the medicine for me. I mean, some of it I think was also living in Asia. I, I had an opportunity to go and I took it. And I thought I'd be there for six months, but I was there for almost five years. And I think partly being there, learning some language, imbibing the culture. Because there's things that we hear when we're in Chinese medicine school, like don't drink ice water. You know, and we all kind of go, oh yeah, don't drink ice water. That's, you know, that's not a cool thing. It's not a good thing to do. That's one thing. But when you live in China, and people really pa lung, right? I mean, they're like, they like seriously pay attention to not getting cold. Not just like, oh yeah, don't drink ice water. 
like my teacher in Taiwan, in the fall, when I'm still wearing shorts, it's just beginning to get a little bit chilly. But I, you know, it's Taiwan, it's hot, it's humid. Well, it's not as humid in the fall, but it's still hot and humid. You know, I'm still wearing short sleeves and thin pants, and he's already wearing long johns under his suit. Partly because he's in his 90s, right? He doesn't have as much yangchi, but still. Just the way that people will take care of themselves against the cold. It's not just an idea. It's, it, it's deeply embedded in the culture. And so I think some of it came from learning some language and living in the culture, and you just get some things by osmosis when the cultural piece gets put in. Those principles just get woven kind of into they your life. They get woven into your life. That's exactly it. That's the perfect word. Something gets woven in. Now, I think you can also get that from your clinical experience. I think you can get it from learning something of Chinese philosophy, reading of Tao Te Ching, and you know that'll come through. I think there's a piece that it, that it is cultural and it, I mean, we have this idea of like the five elements and it's, you know, it's a groovy poetic idea, but can you actually, can you be sitting in a conversation with somebody and get a sense of what's happening as someone's talking through different elements? Oh, they're kind of coming out with some heart energy here. Oh, now their liver is talking, right? Oh, now I'm hearing... Now I'm hearing something of the lung, right? There's something really about longing and missing and perfection and, you know, things like that. And, you know, you can hear it after a while. It's not in your head. It's in your experience. I suspect that's where I got it. Thanks for asking the question. I hadn't even thought about it until you just inquired. Hmm. Well, it's interesting to hear your perspective, you know, as someone who's been going at this for, I think, more than two decades. Yeah, more than I'm persistent. You know, I, I was always impressed, and I'm still impressed with the people who can pick things up really quickly. Right? There are some people they just they pick things up quick. They it's like they get it. They can hear it once or twice, or they've got a photographic memory, or I don't know. They they got a mind that can can grasp things quickly. My mind is not like that, so I have to make up for it with persistence, or as my wife says, stubbornness. But maybe that gives your right brain a chance to shine through and really take everything in. That may be true. I do think there's something about our medicine that we learn in a very intellectual way, very left brain way. Of course, we can use both sides of our brain. That's what humans do. And then there's the right brain stuff. And again, I think that's what comes from clinic. That's why clinic is so important to the seasoning of a practitioner. Yeah. I'm very fortunate that after I started practicing, or like the moment I started practicing, I managed to find a teacher in my city who is willing to mentor me and allow me to follow him in his clinic. And I'm really starting to see that a lot of what um, we might need to pay attention to in the clinic is not necessarily on that intellectual level. Like you really have to kind of put that aside and try to sense kind of what feeling that patient is giving you. I'm still still working on that. Mm -hmm. So 
you use the word sensing, right? Sensing and thinking are, are two ways that we make sense of our experience. So tell me more about what you're learning about sensing with your, with your sensei. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think at least in Chinese medicine school, I would say that, you know, when we were taught to look at a patient um, and, you know, like observe this about their complexion or this about their pulse or this about their tongue, and then you ask about their symptoms. But um, for the teacher that I'm following right now, he would always tell me like, So you first, you look at the person, then you look at the disease or the condition because the person is who you're treating, right? So you need to observe, you know, I guess without any um, preconceived notions, you know, who this person is. Um, and then oftentimes that might give you some insights about their constitution and maybe their tendencies that they might have, as opposed to identifying symptoms which might take you down a rabbit hole. Well, Shin Conran, Conran, yeah, can take you down a rabbit hole. Looking at a person, you know, looking at the person, getting you to understand who the person is at, that also is a rabbit hole. I mean, they're, they both could be. Um, I hear you say it, and this like wave of that's right just kind of goes through me. Shen Kanran, first we look at the person, Ho Kan Bing, then look at the illness. And, you know, and I think we're, that's alluded to in a lot of the training. We pride ourselves on, oh, we, we don't just look at illness, we look at the person. We talk about that. I think it's often part of the like the creation story that we tell ourselves about our medicine and, and who we are within it. And yet, and yet, because we're Westerners, and as you experienced with your coming from nutrition and gosh darn it, we're going to get some good research, we're going to know what to do, and everything's going to fall into a beautiful, pristine place. I mean, what a what a great place to start, right? Then you find out what reality is. Ooh, that... <laughs> Right. But still, I, I think we often give ourselves a lot of credit for, oh, we're very holistic and we look at the person. And yet it's like, uh oh, they got this knee and I got to fix the knee and I got this other patient coming. And because we're Westerners and we already have that Western kind of mindset of we got to fix this problem, I think unconsciously that often floats to the surface and it actually becomes, it goes in front of Conran. It goes in front of really looking at the person. I think it's very easy to delude ourselves with that. That's very true. That is also something maybe we are a little bit conditioned to in our TCM education as well. Because one key feature of TCM is that it kind of takes the methodology of or pattern discrimination, and then it retrofits that to modern definitions of disease. So in that framework, you start with the biomedical disease, and then after that, you select a differential diagnosis among a few different patterns of disharmony. So I mean, obviously that has its benefits too. It, it's helpful for understanding biomedical disease classification. You know, it provides this structure that also aligns with Western educational structures. But a potential issue is that 
it makes the starting point of clinical analysis the biomedical paradigm. Um, and I think that can maybe condition our our brain to work in that way where we're looking at the disease first. Yes. So when you are in that practice of Shen Conran, you're first looking at the person. What are you doing? Um, this is something that is going to, um, I, I'm sure, evolve a lot over time. I hope um, so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think right now I am leaning a lot on my left brain to kind of inform what I do. So I try to, you know, observe different aspects of the patient, the way they talk, the way they move, um, you know, how does their shen look, um, and I guess, and take that in combination with, you know, pulse and tongue and maybe some other symptoms too. So at, at least for now, that's that's what I'm um, doing is trying to come up with a picture based on those pieces. But I, I know that, you know, from watching my teacher that oftentimes just by looking at someone, he can already get a pretty good idea of maybe what constitution or tendencies they might be. Mm -hmm. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. He's been doing it how long now? Over 20 years, yeah. Yeah, he's been at it for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think we learn stuff. And, you know, and one of the beautiful things about our medicine, too, well, if you like to study, one of the beautiful things, if you don't like to study, well, you're probably in the wrong profession. There's so many different ways to look at it, and there's so much to learn. There's so many different perspectives. I feel like we could try them on, almost like you try on clothes. How does this fit me? Right, where you try on different glasses, like sunglasses in particular. Oh, the world looks this way, you know, through this shade, or it looks that way through a different shade. Oh, I like the way the, I like the way these sort of yellow tinted sunglasses make the sky look, you know, it, or the rose colored <laughs> ones, or the or the blue ones. <laughs> yeah, it's a chance to try different things on. I like that analogy. Yeah. Do you ever put on multiple pairs of sunglasses at the same time? 
<laughs> I am not that triple burner excess. So no, no. Um, it's a little little shout out to the Saam folks there. Do I put on different sunglasses at the same time? Yes, I do. Sometimes people ask me like, what kind of acupuncturist are you? And I, you know, I'm like, well, I'm a common yard dog acupuncturist. I'm just like a mix of a bunch of different influences. I know some people, they really will gravitate toward a particular way of working. It works for them. And, um, you know, one of the great things about having, you know, a tradition that you feel really rooted into is that you get a sense of competency and you've got a set of filters and sort of dance steps. So, so you kind of know where you are in time and space with your patient. I feel like different systems of, of medicine, Chinese medicine, will, yeah, let us like put on different sunglasses, different filters. And then it's, you know, it's almost like being at the eye doctor. Well, how's this one? And if I turn it this way, now what do you see? You know, clearer, less clear, that, you know, that kind of thing. And I think it is possible to take different pieces of a tradition and use them to some degree simultaneously. But before you can do that, and this is not from me, this is from a number of teachers I've had, and I would say they were right. You have to understand the system from within its own context. You have to make the system work by itself first, and you have to understand how it works. And the way that you know if you know it works or not is you do something and it works and you know why, and you do something and it doesn't work and you know why. When you get to that point of understanding, then if you want, you can go learn something else and learn it to that degree. And then you can start playing some jazz. Mm, okay. So are you saying that you have to be familiar with your Ray-Bans or your Prada glasses before you can start to <laughs> layer them together? That's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And I think TCM is also its own shade of sunglasses. You yes. know, it's the first pair that we learn to put on. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, man. Now I feel so much more friendly toward TCM. <laughs> Actually, I, I, I went through a phase where I, did, where I was not friendly toward TCM. I'm very friendly toward it now. As we were talking, I think it's, it's a foundation. It gives us a language. So when I was in when I was in Asia, I could understand what doctors I was studying with were talking about, if my Chinese was good enough. What I mean by understand was, when we're talking medicine, I could follow their medical thinking because I had the basics of the medicine that I'd studied, and it allowed me to talk to all kinds of different doctors. Sometimes I'd, you know, I'd really scratch my head, like the first time I read Doctor Huang Huang's book. And I thought, man, my Chinese is still crap because this is weird stuff. I cannot, this doesn't sound right, right? I've never read anything like this. And then eventually I went, uh-oh, I am understanding it. It's just a whole different point of view. For me, the TCM training that I had, it gave me the language and, you know, and enough background that I'd be able to learn from other doctors who thought differently because we shared a common understanding. Right. It gives you the starting point that where from there you can then access other... Anywhere. Yeah. 
Exactly. You can go anywhere. And and the beautiful thing is too, and I found this especially, um, I've taken kind of a deep dive into this um, acupuncture for the past couple of years. And I find that as I, the more I learn about this um, and I practice it and I understand how it works, it explains all kinds of things in TCM that I used to not understand. Mm. Because as you were saying earlier, we learn these protocols and then we do it based on, you know, a, a box of diagrams, but we don't understand the mechanisms behind it. And if you understand the mechanism, you don't need protocols because you can give somebody what they need in that moment because you understand the mechanism. So for you, Sa'am has kind of helped to fill in some of that context? I would say Sa'am has helped to fill in that context. Studying um, like Shang Hanlun herbal formulas has helped to fill that in. Studying the uh, applied channel theory uh, as taught by Jason Robertson through Dr. Wang Jui has helped. Actually, I would say everything has helped. You know, it's just like... Nothing gets thrown away. I, I can think of some Japanese methods that I I studied. I wouldn't say that I necessarily use them. There's something about me that it, you know, it, it didn't fit. But there's something about going through the process of learning something new that, as you put it a little bit earlier, it trains the right brain. It gives mm. something to the right brain to work with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would also say that there was a point where I stood in opposition to TCM, but it was more of a marketing thing. It's like, oh, I do this kind of medicine. And it was I used it as a way of differentiating myself back when I was a younger practitioner. Because, you know, when, when you're getting started, you want to try to differentiate yourself in some way. Oh, I do fertility. I do pain. I do migraines. I, you know, whatever. Yeah, a lot of growth. That can be an issue is, you know, people kind of putting down TCM. And I think we need to be cautious about, you know, looking down on on TCM from our modern Western kind of perspective, because, you know, it was created in that, you know, time of a history where there was this catastrophic chain of events and people needed healthcare and TCM was the backbone basically of the famous barefoot doctor movement and they managed to train lots of doctors quickly and quite impressively they delivered universal healthcare on a very minimal budget so considering that that's quite a considerable achievement and it spread throughout the rest of the world yeah. Spread the, through the rest of the world. I mean, our... That's right. You know, why did those books end up in the United States? Because the people that went to Asia from the West, those were the books that were being used. Those are the ones that got translated. Those are the ones that sort of set that path for the accreditation bodies to create a profession for us. Right. And that's one of the benefits of standardization. It's one is, of the benefits. Yeah, it can be, you know, neatly packaged um, and then exported around the world. And it can give us licenses so we can have a livelihood and help people and deepen our experience every single day. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because it is, you know, this synthesis of Chinese medicine and biomedicine, it is a structure that can interface well with, you know, Western regulatory frameworks. It does. You know, I hadn't thought about that. And I, I, I so appreciate your perspective with doing this research and, and what you've learned and what you're sharing in terms of the, the deep importance with the context. And we need to keep our eye on that. And also that because TCM kind of has some biomedicine built into it, it makes it more accessible to the Western mind. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that if it wasn't for TCM, I might not be doing Chinese medicine right now because I think, you know, as you remember, I was coming from this very strong biomedical background. And the only reason I was drawn to Chinese medicine and acupuncture is that there were a lot of research studies out there to kind of, I guess, quote unquote, validate um, those professions. So I've got a question for you. When you started to realize that this way that you had of looking at the world and that research was going to give us the answers and put it into a neat, pristine package, two questions. The first is, was there some sort of inciting incident where you go, uh-oh, it may not be this way? Mm. And the second question I'll get to later. Yes. There was kind of this this shift where I did start to go like, uh-oh. At first, if if it's just based on research studies and that's where evidence comes from, then that's actually a lot simpler to work with. All you have to do is dissect the research study and see how robust and well-designed it was, their sample size, was it enough? And then that's kind of how you judge whether or not that was a good study that you can use information from. But I feel like once I started to realize that that Chinese medicine was not that straightforward and there was a lot of different ways of knowing in Chinese medicine, then that's when it started. I realized it was actually a lot, I guess, messier, um, a little bit more unruly than I expected. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it became quite a headache because... I'll bet it too. <laughs> because, um, you know, I was coming from nutrition and my plan was actually to practice, you know, nutrition and acupuncture. At first, in my mind, it seemed simple. You know, I would put some needles in a patient, then we would do some nutrition counseling, and then they would be on their way. But then, you know, the, the more I thought about it, then I realized, wait a minute, I want to practice nutrition from the paradigm of Chinese medicine. And that's where it got messy because that blurred the line between my two disciplines. And this is a whole other can of worms, Michael, but if you know any dietitians, we are a very hardcore group of evidence-based people. Um, So anyways, I know I'm not sure we want to get into that. Let's 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 dive into that just a little bit. Yeah, you've really got my attention with that. <laughs> okay. I thought about how I could practice nutrition from the paradigm of Chinese medicine in an evidence-based manner because actually for dietitians it's written in our code of ethics that we need to conduct evidence-based practice. I put together this proposal and sat down with my dietitian regulatory college. 
Um, and keep in mind, these are people that have zero background in Chinese medicine. And basically, I explained to them that, you know, Chinese medicine is not simply some random handful of folk remedies, even though folk remedies can be a part of Chinese medicine. But for the most part, Chinese medicine is a scholarly tradition that is built on this foundation of source texts compiled over thousands of years. And these texts are the result of what is essentially a scientific process, you know, where the ancient people observed nature, they made inferences about how the human body worked, they tested and verified hypotheses in the clinic, um, and they documented their findings. And over time, these ideas were, you know, retested and debated and reformulated. And that kind of gave rise to the theories and concepts we have today. Not to mention all the commentaries over the years of doctors arguing with each other about their treatments? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a big part of it. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's such an alive tradition. Mm-hmm. So one difference with, you know, modern science and Chinese medicine is that Modern science kind of operates on this notion that as new ideas spring up, older ones fall away. And while Chinese medicine is more of this additive approach where the classics tend to be this ultimate reference for everything and newer ideas tend to be layered and integrated onto the older ideas. And so what I proposed to the college was that nutrition... Um, that was evidence-based and practiced from Chinese medicine would basically be that any statements made about nutrition would need to be able to um, be traced back to medical canons or be generally congruent with the cumulative body of knowledge in Chinese medicine. It's kind of like any other discipline where I think the responsible thing to do is to cite the source, basically. And thankfully, they were pretty receptive to my what I had to say and what my plans were. So how do you integrate your nutrition in with your needle practice at this point? Mm, basically, it looks kind of the same on the surface. I put needles in and then I do some nutrition counseling. But the nutrition counseling also includes pieces that are like food energetics and Chinese medicine dietetics as well. It's not quite the same as you thought it would be when you started. Mm-hmm. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. You okay with that? Yeah, I am okay with that. It's quite refreshing sometimes to have your expectations shattered. <laughs> <laughs> huh. When I think of having my expectations shattered, I'm usually thinking of suffering. But there's also often some liberation that comes from that. Mm-hmm. I, I just love the way that you can say, had my expectations shattered with a smile. That's uh, <laughs> that's a mindset I think I want to try to adopt a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate your time today and, and your willingness to come forward and talk with me about this stuff. Again, I appreciated the research that you did. Can we post this on the on the website if people want to pull it down and read it? Yeah, absolutely. Great. So I'll make sure that there is a link on the show notes page and all y'alls can can check this out. It's like serious research. 
Brenda Lee does not mess around. Let me tell you. Um, and there's some great stuff and interesting stuff. I, actually, I got just one more thing. This might be a provocative question, but so what? Shatter my expectations. <laughs> well, actually, my expectations got shattered on this. Is One of the things that I was reading about is when you went about it, you reached out to some people, but you also reached out to a number of organizations and said, will you please distribute this survey? Because, you know, help me with this research. And you, you put it out to seven organizations. Four of them didn't even bother writing you back. And the other three turned you down. Yeah. That seems like a real curiosity to me. Here you are doing what you can to help us look deeper into our work and our tradition. And you didn't get a whole lot of support. What do you think was going on there? Hmm. Um, well, for the organizations that did write back to me, they did have some concerns about, you know, this, you know, distributing surveys isn't really part of our scope for what our organization does. You know, regulatory colleges don't really do research. That was kind of part of it. And I'm not sure, actually, Michael, I think one of the things in, at least within Canada in general, is that there doesn't seem to be much, you know, discussion or scholarly activity about TCM in general. And for the most part, people in Canada opt for, you know, that broad definition of TCM. You know, not to say that that's, that's right or wrong, but that's just how it is. And I just haven't seen much discussion on it um, here over here. I know actually, you know, I'm sure in the States, you guys are almost tired of the discussion about TCM, but actually I think in Canada where I haven't seen much talk about it. So, you know, there just might not be much awareness about this topic in general. Well, I appreciate the work that you've done. I very much appreciate this discussion because yeah, it seems like people who go, yeah, TCM, that's it or TCM. Nope, that's not it. And I know for myself over the years, I've come to this place of it's a piece of our tradition and understanding where it comes from, how it fits in, how it came to be what it is. It's like working with a patient. How did they come to be how they are? It's just helpful to understand something instead of like fight against it. Yeah, it's part of what our medicine looks like today. And so it's really important that we understand, um, you know, how we got here. And I think we also need to think about TCM in a way where we're also practicing gratitude for, you know, what the people before us have done. You know, I remember, you know, when I was in school, I was very fortunate to be taught by two instructors who were also founding professors of our school. And, oh my gosh, they worked so hard to get acupuncture regulated in our province and to set up this educational program. They had to overcome so many obstacles. It's really important for us to, you know, take a moment and realize that the Chinese medicine profession has come a long way in the West. I'm really grateful, you know, that as a new practitioner, that I get to start out in this profession that is already pretty well established. You know, there's lots of translated texts. There's lots of resources out there. Um, so I think definitely, you know, we need to appreciate all the work that's been done before us. Gratitude is helpful. 
I think we can just leave it with that. Yeah. Brenda, thanks for your time today. It's been a delight. It's been a pleasure, Michael. I love the scientific method. I think the tools of inquiry that it gives truly helps us to parse fantasy from reality and might be one of the best cognitive tools around for updating our mental models, understanding of the world, and understanding ourselves as well. I so appreciate how Brenda used the scientific process and allowed the results to change her thinking. True scientists are as happy to get a no as a yes in their inquiry as they're not attached to the results that support a narrative. They are open-heartedly engaged in inquiry as a way to open and cultivate the spirit and intellect. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.